Dear listener, we hope that you've been enjoying the variety of podcasts that we have on our network. Now is your opportunity to help us by telling us a little more about you. Please visit jcastnetwork.org survey and complete our listener survey so that we can learn more about you and your listening habits. Again, please visit jcastnetwork.org survey. Thanks so much. You are listening to Sermons with Rabbi David Seth Kirchner, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Shana Tova, everyone, and Gemar Chatima Tova. Happy, healthy New Year and a good final inscription in the Book of Life to you, to your families, and to your loved ones. I have a theoretical question for you. If you could go back in time, way back, and you had the ability to see dinosaurs, and you had the ability to prevent their extinction, would you? Now, it's a theoretical question, so don't get hung up in the weeds like, would they kill me or how would I do it? Just play with me a little bit, okay? If you could go back in time and you had the ability to stop dinosaurs from becoming extinct, would you do it? In other words, what I'm asking you is, is it better to have tinkered with our past to create a different destiny for today Or is our world a better place for dinosaurs having gone extinct? Think about that question for a second. I asked that question because I bet you if someone would have told civilization in the time of dinosaurs that, hey, you know, in a few years, maybe 100, 200, 300, maybe 3,000 years, there aren't going to be dinosaurs anymore, people could have reacted in two ways. They most likely would have brushed it off and said, yeah, right, whatever. Or they would have fought to keep dinosaurs around. Now the question, while philosophical, isn't so novel. It actually is the same question that Marty McFly asked in Back to the Future. He had an opportunity in going back in time to tinker with history and what would affect his literal existence today. And he had to question and wrestle with that very notion, that very idea. So here's the reason I'm asking you about dinosaurs. I'm asking you because I think you're sitting in and I think you're looking at a dinosaur, so to speak. I'm pretty sure, not immediately, maybe not even in our lifetimes, but I'm pretty sure the notion of the rabbi, as you know it from when you and I grow up, and the synagogue, as you and I know it, is going to become extinct. Now, I want to be incredibly clear. I need all of you to listen. If you listen to only one sentence of this entire sermon, listen to this one. I do not think that Judaism is going to become extinct. I really don't. This is not a gloom and doom sermon, and I'm not a gloom and doom rabbi, and I'm a pretty positive guy. I don't think Judaism is going to diminish much at all. But I do think we are going to see the demise of the synagogue in a way that you and I never envisioned and the demise of the role of the rabbi in a way that you and I never anticipated. And I really think that. I think our synagogues and our rabbis in the world are in the same situation today that I posed to you theoretically about dinosaurs. And the question is, should we ignore it 
and let nature take its course because that will be better? Or do we run to try and change that fate? Well, some of you might be asking, how did I come to this conclusion? Well, if you remember from Rosh Hashanah, I gave a word or two about mavens and things that people know and don't know. This happens to be one of the areas where I spend most of my time. But most of my time looking at this with empirical evidence, anecdotal evidence, sociological surveys, talking to leaders in the industry of the Jewish world, and feeling the pulse of our congregation and a lot of other congregations. And I don't have three days, because that's exactly how long it would take for me to exhaust every single reason as proof as to why I believe this is going to happen. But I'll share a summary of it with you. But I want to tell you one thing that I think puts me at a different perspective than everyone else who might share this view, and I'm not alone on this one. We're sharing this view, I'm sharing this view, from a place of strength. Our synagogue is one of the only synagogues in the conservative movement in the entire country that had more members join this past year than leave the synagogue this past year. That's a net growth. Right? That's a good thing for us. It's a good thing for Jews. We're the only synagogues in the world that's conservative that has that. We had a balanced budget for the last two years. Puts us again in the top 2% of shuls. And we know that we're looking at this from a place of strength. That's a good thing. And I want to be very clear. There's nothing about my remarks or words tonight that say to us, oh my goodness, the rafters are falling, the shul's going to cave in, woe to us. Nope. This shul is healthy, and it is strong, and it is good. There are things we need to make better. Who doesn't have a place that needs to be addressed and ways to make it better? But I'm looking at this from a global perspective, not Temple Emanuel in close to New Jersey, globally. I'm looking at Bergen County, I'm looking at the state of New Jersey, I'm looking at the United States of America, and I'm worried about this epidemic. And I think this epidemic is serious because while indeed we gained 36 new members of our synagogue, not members who joined to get married, real members in the last year, <laughs> the other ones are real members too, but they're not the same members that all of you are, okay? We lost 28. 28 of those same real members left the temple. Now, why did they leave our shul? Well, there's a host of reasons, but it all boils down to the following things, which leads me to worry about what's happening in synagogues across North America. One, it's it's really expensive. The cost of being Jewish is not insignificant, and people aren't quick to spend the money on joining a shul these days. It's just a quick raise for them. It's that simple. Two, they're switching to this notion of a la carte Judaism. Now, I'm going to give you what that means in a metaphor, because that's what rabbis do. There are many organizations today, many institutions, that instead of offering general health care for their employees, they offer catastrophic coverage, and then they pay for all their health care needs in addition to their gym memberships. Why? Because they think it's cheaper if they look after their health and have catastrophic coverage to save that money and invest that money than it is to pay that money in general health care costs, much of it which doesn't get used and is astronomical. Does everyone understand what I'm explaining there? That's a hedge that many organizations, some Jewish, are taking. Some say it's a wise hedge, some say it's not. I'm a rabbi, I have no idea. But I can tell you this. The majority of Jews in the world are doing this and they're unaffiliated and doing the exact same thing Jewishly because they can. 
They don't need to join a shul. They hire a rabbi to marry them, and they can hire a rabbi to bury them. And when it comes time to affiliation and where it is that they want to connect with their Judaism, they have breakfast at the country club. They work out at the JCC. They go to their annual lecture at the Jewish Federation. This is their Yiddishkeit. This is their Judaism. What else do they need? When you put those factors together, and I'm giving you the simplest gloss that's possible over this entire process, you are learning why here and in other places people are leaving synagogue life and rabbis are morphing from the shepherds that usher you through life cycles and happy moments and sad moments and are there at all of the portals of your life into what I am calling a la carte Judaism. When you need him or her, they're there, they officiate, and there are no connective tissues that happen. Now, if you don't believe me, just look at the unaffiliated rate in the Pew Report. Knock on the doors of so many of your friends, colleagues, neighbors, all over the world, because this is the phenomenon that is happening. There are so many portals to being Jewish that people find the synagogue is not the best for them. And let's put another thing out there. The truth is, all of these Jewish organizations are fighting for the same nickel. All the people who fund the Federation fund the JCC, and they fund the things at the country club, and they fund the JNF, and the FIDF, and the temple, and all these other things. And then we end up fighting to honor the same people. And what ends up happening? It becomes a Jewish survival of the fittest. That's what it is. It's a survival of the fittest. And I happen to be very lucky, and so do all of you, that we are really fit. But guess what? The Bergen Y, not fit, had to close its doors. Schulz and Teaneck and in Bergenfield and other places throughout this area, same fate, had to close their doors and sell. A shul in New Milford that had 80 families was offered the chance to merge, turned it down, closed its doors with seven families left. And that's here and one of the largest Jewish metropolitan areas in the world. What do you think it's like in Kansas City? What do you think it's like in Austin, Texas? What do you think it's like in deep other suburbs like Des Moines? It's even more challenging. And why did this happen? This happened because originally Jews didn't have roles in all of these places. And the synagogue was the central place where we came to for so many things. Shuls in the old days were called Jewish centers. Raise your hand if you grew up in a Jewish center. A lot of you. Why were they called Jewish centers? Because they had gyms in them in addition to being shuls. And they had academic pieces in them too. So people made one stop for all of their Jewish components, which was great. But what happened as a result of that? All these other portals opened. And we started fighting each other for all of these other places and market share. And it used to be that hospitals like Maimonides and Sinai only opened. Why? Because they wouldn't let Jewish doctors in the other hospitals. Today, they happen to be the best hospitals in the world. Now, someone told me, I have no proof checking or fact checking on this one, but someone told me that in its day, many, many years ago, Inglewood Hospital was the same way. I don't know that to be true or not, but let's just say they're right. Do you know there are five executive members of the board of Inglewood Hospital, and four of those executive members are members of this temple? What does that tell you about where Jews have come in the last few decades and why it is that people might disconnect in other ways? 
So maybe in looking at this metaphor, this synagogue is the triceratops of dinosaurs. And by that I mean it was the last one to become extinct. But the Brontosaurus and the Velociraptor, the Tyrannosaurus Rex, I got all this from my son Elias. Um, <laughs> all of those are beginning to drop like flies throughout the country. And let's be honest, let's be really honest. This shul today, it's not the shul that you grew up in. I mean, maybe you grew up in this shul, technically. But the shul as it's wired today is not the same shul that you grew up in. I don't care if you're 20 years old or 120 years old. It's a different place. And the question that I'm posing to all of you is, if we continue down this road, even if we're the last in line, is should we keep going down this road because it's going to be better? Or should we arrest this process today? Well, let me give you another story that maybe all of you can appreciate. It was a story on one of the best documentary television shows that has ever existed in history. It's called Real Sports on HBO. It's one of the real reasons why I keep HBO is to watch this show every month when it comes out. It's brilliant. And this month they had a fantastic segment on baseball umpires. It turns out that umps behind the plate get one-third of close calls wrong. 33% of the close calls behind the plate they get wrong. Now, 33% might seem low to you, but in the world of baseball, that is high. So, players in particular are saying we have the technology now. It's called pitch FX that all of us see on television, and you'll know now in October as we're watching the games, you can see what is actually a strike and what is actually a ball. And we can witness what the umpires get right and get wrong. So there's a movement now by the Players Association, some, not all, that says we need to institute this technology into baseball. Because A, it's going to help with the pace of play, which is a major issue in baseball. B, it's going to keep the game more honest. It's going to take some of the pressure off these umpires. People are fighting like crazy. And so many of these balls, when they get strike, those one-third of the close ones will cease to exist. The computer is almost always right. Well, everyone says that except for one particular umpire. This umpire, who was... Uh, very famous in his time since retired, his name is Jerry Crawford. He said, I don't care what the computer says, I don't care what the reports are, nothing is better than the human eye. No machine can do our job as well as we can. I've been calling balls and strikes behind the plate for decades, and my eye knows better than those machines. So Crawford is at odds with other players in Major League Baseball as to whether to incorporate FX into the game. Some say, hey, if you do this, you have lost the essence of baseball. And others say, no, by getting it wrong, you lose the essence of baseball. So who's right? They even brought in a guy, I think is Jewish, his name's Toby Moskowitz from Yale. <laughs> He's about five foot one. That's what confirmed it for me. And he looked at this data over three years of every single pitch in Major League Baseball and came to the conclusion that more than 28% of the pitches are called wrong and why pitch effects will change it for the better. But people like Crawford and the Empires Association and some players as well say, no, you can't switch. 
So what do you do? Do you listen to Players Association and incorporate technology? Or do you listen to people like Jerry Crawford who says there's a sense of tradition and this is the direction in which the game should go? Well, bringing us back to center for a second, think about our shul. I'm going to give you uh, two quick examples of things that happen on the like with our temple that lead us in this direction, that are part of the same kind of conversation, that ask the question, are we triceratops or are we going on to extinction and that's okay? In my day, growing up, especially outside of Florida but in Detroit too, the synagogue gift shop was a sacrosanct place that was opened by the sisterhood ladies three afternoons a week and on Sunday mornings, and people would flock in to get bar and bat mitzvah gifts and things for Pesach and Hanukkah and all types of other activities. Now, I want to be abundantly clear. I love our gift shop. I love our sisterhood. Nothing is an indictment of them or the incredible work that they do. But my question is, and it's not for our shul, it's for every shul in North America. Do we really need synagogue gift shops the same way we used to? After Yuntif, I want you to do a little exercise. Tomorrow night, maybe Thursday morning, I want you to go to Amazon.com. And I want you to type in the word Havdalah Candle. Havdalah Candle. Spell it with a W, Havdalah Candle, like they do in Poland. Spend it with a, spell it with a V like they do here. Spell it with two L's at the end or one. doesn't matter. You're going to come up with literally 927 options of Havdalah Candles. Ranging in price from $0.38 cents to $47. Habdallah candles from Spain, from France, from Germany, from Israel, from Napa, from Chicago, from Borough Park. <laughs> Habdallah candles that can come to you tomorrow and some that can come by drone today. <laughs> as funny as it is, it's the reality. There's nothing you can't get in a day. Jewishly. But still, go build a shul today, and good luck talking to sisterhoods and men's clubs, the same idea, about the need to no longer have a gift shop. And there are two schools of thought on the gift shop. We have to have the gift shop because it's valuable, and it matters, and people still come, and they use it as a source of revenue. And that is all valid and true. And others who say... But that real estate could be used for more important things. And all the things that we need to get, we can get from Amazon. We could get a smile account and a percentage goes to us or any of these other things that could happen. And we ask the exact same question. Which direction do we take? Do we stop the dinosaurs from becoming extinct? Or do we allow nature to take its course? No different when it comes to a shul bulletin when everyone reads emails today. It's no different for so many other purposes of technology. In fact, we put up flat screens in our synagogue, in the education and administrative wing, and in the synagogue wing when you walk in. These screens are multicolor. They run all the time. No one turns them off. They're on a timer. And it lists all the many things happening at the synagogue. And for those of you who've been members for our shul for a long time, you remember you used to come in to a row of posters. Now, those posters cost $100 each to make. So we're spending thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars in printing things that get thrown out, and people don't capture it the same way. And we decided to, submit, to switch to this plan because it was better and more green and more economical for the temple. But there were traditionalists who were absolutely opposed to it. How could we have a television on on the holidays, on Shabbat, on Yom Kippur? How could that be? And both were right. 
I wrestled with it myself until I went to Israel on Shabbat in the winter. And it started to rain when I was at the Kotel. And at the Kotel, for those of you on the men's side, you know there's a little tunnel area that you can go in that gives you shelter. And as I walked in, I saw a giant flat screen TV that was on. <laughs> announcing all of the times when services would be held at the Kotel for that day and the following day. I turned to one of the guys who clearly spends a lot of time at the Kotel and I said, what's with the TV? <laughs> I was channeling some congregants, obviously. He said, it's technology, it's on a timer. Some were opposed to it, some were in favor of it, but those who were in favor won. In essence, he was asking the same question. He was asking the question, well, we had to decide whether we were going to be a triceratops, and we were going to stick our heels in and stay, whether we were going to now allow technology to take its course. When you think of technology, you can think of other notions. I'll give you an example. When teleconferencing first came out, everyone thought this was going to be the best thing since Raisin Hala, that it was going to like, change the technology of the world and no one had to travel anymore. And people here who are road warriors, they thought, oh, thank God, this is great, my miles are gone, I could stay home and sleep in my own bed. And what did all the organizations find out within minutes, if not hours or days? That it's amazing technology, but it doesn't work. You can't make a sale over the television. You can't connect with people's emotions and body languages over the television. You can't have the same interpersonal dynamic over television. You can't share a meal and break bread and laugh over television. So what happened? They used the technology for a thousand other things, but people still had to get back on the road and get face-to-face -to, -face to start making sales and deals in order to bring the numbers back up. So sometimes you realize that even when you have something new, you still have to hold on to tradition because it works better. I share that story with you because it reminds us that not every remedy is based in technology and advances. Sometimes by sticking with the old, it works. All it does is thicken our conundrum of deciding which direction it is that we should be going in. Not this past summer, but the one before, Doria and I took a road trip with our kids. We got in a car in Chicago, and we drove all the way to Los Angeles. We were, in fact, the Griswolds. <laughs> and uh, we spent some time in Yellowstone Park, which was gorgeous and beautiful. And we got a tour guide to take us for nine hours through Yellowstone Park. Well, there's good news and bad news in that. We paid for four hours, but he liked us so much, he gave us nine. <laughs> it was not exactly what we wanted, but he was driving. So... <laughs> He, um, he, he told us this amazing thing when we saw this area that was all burnt down. And the kids, you know, instinctively responded by saying, oh, it's terrible, there was a forest fire here. That's so sad. And you and I would have the same reaction. Terrible. That's right. That's right, Lou. It was a good thing. What's that? That's exactly right. He was explaining to us that it's actually a good thing. That when fire comes and burns some of these forests down, there's something that happens in the heat of the fire that can never happen otherwise naturally. What is it? That the seeds and the acorns that drop, when they are burnt under fire, it gives off a new form of seed, so a new form of vegetation and plantation comes forward that ne could never otherwise be born were it not for that heat. So in essence, what they realize now is that forest fires are actually good because it puts off another form of vegetation that never existed before that is healthier and longer lasting and good for the environment. So the question I pose to you is the question I asked before.
Is it our job to be Smokey the Bandit? No, Smokey the Bear, sorry. <laughs> They're both from the 80s. Is it our job to be Smokey the Bear? <laughs> Is it our job to be Smokey the Bear and to prevent forest fires? Or should we be like my tour guide who reminded us how good they are? Which direction should we take? Synagogues, Judaism, rabbis, and our future? You know, it would be obnoxious for me just to share this conundrum and not share with all of you what I think. As someone who does spend a lot of time on this, I actually have an opinion on it, beyond the opinion of thinking that we're going to become extinct. So let me share it with you. If you ask me whether we should be the Triceratops or the people stopping the Triceratops, or if we should be Smokey the Bear or my tour guide, or if we should be Jerry Caldwell, the umpire, or the part of Major League Baseball that wants pitch FX, I will tell you unequivocally, the answer is yes. <laughs> I think we have to be both. That's really hard to say, and it's even harder to absorb. We live in a world today that absorbs that mathematical equation that the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. It's true. There's no way to get around that. The shortest distance between two points is a straight line. But who says we have to take a straight line everywhere we go? Is there anything so criminal in zigzagging? Is there anything so criminal in not having a direct route? I think sometimes we actually have to do that. I think the world we live in today is one that demands us to always take a straight line, to work in monochromatic colors, black or white. You are categorized in one choice. They can do surveys that will ask you one question, whatever it is, randomly, who are you voting for? You can answer who you vote for, and the chances of them statistically counting on where you are on Roe v. Wade, where you are in your tax bracket, where it is that you are in your faith, where it is that you shop, whether stop and shop or Whole Foods, can be determined by that one choice you take. There are statisticians that can narrow in on this and are incredibly precise. And I think that's wrong. I want to tell you, I think black lives matter. And I think that cops' lives matter. But we have created a paradigm in America that you are either in one camp or the other. There is no way for you to live in both. Well, that's absurd. That's absolutely absurd. The reason we think that way is because we've created paradigms where everything's a straight line. Point A to point B has to be straight. Who said it has to be straight? Why can't it zigzag a little bit? Why can't we step out of line? Why can't I stand up with African-American people who I believe in some situations are being wrongly persecuted by our police? And why can't I stand shoulder to shoulder with police officers across this country who put themselves in the line of fire every day and protect the interests of you and me and love them both? I have enough of that love to give, and so do you. Why can I only live in one world? Why do I have to live in a world that says, if there's a TV at the shul, a flat screen, I'm not coming anymore? Why can't we say, there's a TV at the shul and I'm not in favor of it, but there's so many other things that I do love at the shul? 
Why are we that way? Why do we think that one change to Major League Baseball will undo the entire history of the sport? Why do we believe that? I think it's from a paradigm, believe it or not, that comes from Judaism. Judaism asks this famous question that is a model for how Jews are supposed to live their life. It's a crazy situation where a man goes into the mikvah and he's holding a reptile. And he dips himself in the mikvah. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with the laws of purity and impurity, you need to understand that going into the mikvah makes you pure. But holding a reptile makes you impure. So the question is, kind of one of those Murphy's Laws questions, what is it? If you're holding a reptile, when you go into the mikvah, do you become pure or impure? This is a famous conundrum, a famous question asked in Jewish tradition. And the problem with this question is, is that people expect you to give an answer. It is pure, unequivocally. It is impure, unequivocally. It is no different than the question that they teach us to be prepared for in rabbinical school that has never been presented to me once. My meatball falls into a dairy pot, Rabbi. Is the meatball milchik or fleshik? Can I eat it? This is what I trained six years for, ladies and gentlemen. Six years for that question. Six years to say, Rabbi, do I say Kaddish today or don't I say Kaddish today? Rabbi, can I drive to this place or can I not drive to this place? Rabbi, if it's Shabbos, am I allowed to serve food at the soup kitchen or am I not allowed to serve food at the soup kitchen? What about this question? My child's being intermarried. A rabbi is going to be present. I don't believe in the marriage, but I want to be there. There's no straight line on that answer. There's no definitive yes or definitive no. It's a zigzag, and any of you who've been in those shoes know that it's a zigzag. And there's nothing so criminal with a zigzag. We have enough in our minds, in our hearts, in our souls to embrace the parts of tradition that we think are sacrosanct, that we don't want to lose, and we have enough in our hearts and in our minds to embrace the parts of modernity that we think are critical to our future. This sermon is a lot more than a discussion about our temple. It's a lot more than a discussion about Judaism. It's a lot more than a discussion about the extinction of dinosaurs or rabbis or synagogues. It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor for your life and for my life. Are you going to embrace the path that your kids chose? Or are you going to dig your heels in and make sure that they follow the path that you set and that you know is right? Are you going to appreciate their independence? Are you going to fight against the tide to try and shape them into who you want them to be? Are we going to allow our marriages to grow and mature through its rhythms and paths, even though it might end us up in a path that we didn't originally plan to take? Or are we going to double down and say, this is what a marriage should be and how it should be, and fight every day to get it to that place? 
are we going to accept that our parents are who our parents are and our siblings are who our siblings are and we had no choice in who we were born to and who our siblings are? Are we going to accept who they are and embrace who they are? Or are we going to threaten to walk away from what is our DNA because we can't accept those traits or those characteristics? Whether it's our kids, our parents, our siblings, our spouses, our shul, or our Jewish future, the answer does not need to be either or. It can be and. We can embrace some, and we can keep some. And for all of us, what it is that we choose to embrace and what it is we choose to keep might be different. But it's not a straight line. There are different parts to it. And that is ultimately what our question is today. There's a teaching, the traditions of our ancestors are in our hands. Now, usually that means it's up to us to keep their traditions. But if you want to be literal in the translation, it means it's up to us to keep the traditions how we want. It is in our hands to decide our future. It is in our hands. I want to close with a beautiful story for Yom Kippur that encapsulates this conundrum for you and for me. A conundrum that I hope you wrestle with tonight and tomorrow and every day in the year to come as you choose the zigzag points in your life for how you move forward. It's a story told by Shai Agnon, the great writer from Israel and Nobel laureate. He tells this story of a man who was very poor, madly in love with another woman. He was a tailor, and he couldn't afford the money to buy her a ring. So he made for her the most beautiful silk scarf, and he proposed to her with this scarf. The woman was smitten with the man, is smitten with this moment of tenderness and love. And of course, she accepted the scarf, wore it on her wedding day, and always kept it near her. Together they brought a boy into the world, and sadly, the tailor had died. It came time for the boy's bar mitzvah, 13 years of age, and the mother took the boy aside and privately said, your father's not with you physically, but he's here in spirit, and I want to give you a present that is the most meaningful present I could ever give to you on your bar mitzvah day. She explains the story of the engagement and hands over the silk scarf to the boy, The boy is touched and feels his father's presence. He celebrates his bar mitzvah on Shabbat, and on Monday morning, the boy walks to school. On his way to school, he sees a homeless man with a wound on his leg. He stops for a moment. He takes out the scarf. He binds the wound and walks to school. Some of you will see that story as throwing away that one link between the man and his son and his wife and what should be a treasured piece of their family history and lore. And others will say in that moment, there was the most beautiful exemplification of what Judaism teaches we should do with the gifts in our hand and how his father would want him to live. That's a question for all of us. It's up to us to shape our stories. 
our lives and our future. This shul and every shul in North America is our scarf. Judaism is our scarves. Rabbis are our scarves. Our children are our scarves. Our spouses are our scarves. Our community and our loved ones, they are our scarves. And we all inherit the scarf. So what are we going to do with it? Are we putting the scarf in a drawer? Are we putting it on a limb to heal? Or is there a way for us to do both? That's what this night of Kol Nidre is all about. You decide how we're going to shape our future. And equally important to that, through those decisions, you decide how that future will one day talk about its past. Shana Tova, everyone.